Welcome to a new episode of A Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast that explores innovation and equity in global health. It's a recording of a live policy briefing with Elisha Dunn-Georgiou, the new president and CEO of the Global Health Council. She shares her views on global health policy and funding updates on Capitol Hill. It has, after all, been a very busy fall, with the UN General Assembly meeting and the subsequent Biden COVID-19 summit just behind us, and the Global Climate Summit about to take place in Glasgow, Scotland. The podcast is brought to you by the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, a network of academics, tech, biotech and other companies, as well as NGOs and community organisations, all based in the Bay Area and all committed to improving the health of people around the world. The policy briefing was hosted by the Alliance with its sister alliances from Georgia, Research Triangle Park and Washington. We hope you find the discussion interesting and useful. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us this morning for our policy briefing. We are so lucky to have Elijah Dunn Giorgio, the new CEO and president of the Global Health Council, in conversation with Bill Plumley, who is a senior advisor with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance and the host of A Shot in the Arm podcast. My name is Sarah Anderson, and I'm the executive director of the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. We're now a fairly new community, but a global health community connecting our more than 57 members from academic institutions, NGOs, community-based organizations, tech, biotech, and other private sector companies. We're also part of a network of regional alliances and the Global Health Council and they are our co-hosts today. So with that, I wanted to just welcome and just say how pleased we are to have you, Alicia and Ben, and I will let you guys take it from there, and Maria from the Georgia Global Health Alliance. Um, We're very excited about today's conversation, welcoming the new president of the Global Health Council, Elisha Dunn-Giorgio. And Elisha, we're really grateful for you being making time to join us um, right after just joining the team a little over a month ago, I believe. So um, thank you. We're excited to hear um, your discussion today on some of the things I know you've dove dove right into in your new role at uh, GHC. And Ben, thank you for joining us for this uh, important conversation. I will, I believe Sarah may have already covered this, but please feel free to pop any questions into the chat. But um, with that, I want to make sure we have enough time for a robust conversation. Um, Sarah and I are thrilled to host this in partnership with our fellow alliances around the country. Um, and with that, I'll turn it over to Ben and Elisha. Well, thank you very much. Um, My name is Ben Plumley. I'm a senior advisor to the Bay Area Global Health Alliance. I'm a policy analyst and strategist. And as Sarah said, I'm the host of a Shot in the Arm podcast about innovation and equity in global health. And this webinar will be released as an episode of a Shot in the Arm podcast very shortly. I'm also part of the team that is bringing you the recently launched Vax Up podcast, which explores how different organizations around the world are using social technology to build vaccine acceptance. So it is a real honor for me to be joined by Alicia Dunn-Giorgio, who is a global advocate for sexual and reproductive rights, sexual and reproductive health. Um, And like many leaders 
uh, many of our leaders in global health today. She was in the Peace Corps. Just before the uh, conversation started, we were joking that once you've been in the Peace Corps, you're in it for life, a bit like the Catholic Church. So, um, Alicia, I wanted to ask you, Elisha, I wanted to ask you, um, it's probably a bit before your time, but Holbrook, the late ambassador Richard Holbrook, led the Morocco and North African uh, Peace Corps mission. Did you have any interactions with him? Um, and what was your Peace Corps experience like? Well, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Sarah and, and the alliances for having me today. This is definitely exciting. Um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I uh, was a Peace Corps volunteer in Morocco after Richard Holbrook, I believe. Um, I definitely would have remembered if Richard Holbrook was my country director. I, I was there um, and I did my service as a maternal and child health volunteer. And I lived in a small village called Tislit, which means bride in the Berber dialect. Um, and, you know, it's the southern part of Morocco, very indigenous population. I was fortunate that while I was there, there was a big UNICEF project working on women's empowerment and women's reproductive health. And so it was really my first and seminal experience, not just working and living in a community, but also really seeing how international development works. Um, and, and I still refer to a, a lot of those lessons, as you said, Peace Corps never really leaves you or you never really leave the Peace Corps. Uh, and they have definitely really formed a foundation in my career and how I approach health and health equity and, and empowerment and community work as well. So you, you were um, a vice president of advocacy and policy at PAI. Mm -hmm. You were the interim executive director mm -hmm. just before coming over to uh, GHC. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? What, why health and equity and advocacy? Mm -hmm. What drives you? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting origin conversation, right? Of sort of how we pick the thing that we end up spending our lives on or how it picks us. I, I don't know if I have a clear answer. I will say that even as a kid, I was interested in health and I, I come from a very socially adjusted minded family. Um, and I also grew up in a kind of recovering industrial town in upstate New York that really laid bare, I think, the effect of health disparity um, and health inequity across the board, um, both its impacts just on individuals, but also on communities and the, the I don't want to say trickle down because that has its own connotations, but um, the ripple effects that, you know, health inequity has on um, on economics, education, really just tackling disenfranchisement overall. And so it was something that I, I've always pursued. And working in the advocacy space, uh, you know, I started out as a, an epidemiologist before going into the Peace Corps, and that was sort of my focus was public health. And I guess at the heart of it, I'm a pro I like to solve problems. And so whether it's, you know, public health interventions, research, or advocating for better resources, better policies, better systems, that problem solving piece is, is at the heart of it. And it ties in to me with, with solving the health equity question. I love that. I mean, I, I describe myself as someone who joins dots, but, but really <laughs> someone who solves problems. Yeah. So that's what I aspire to. That, that's fantastic. Um, 
I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Global Health Council. And yeah. I, I know, I mean, what, it's been four weeks, it's a month since. Yes. You <laughs> but how are you finding it? Um, how are you settling in? Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing organization. I know you have been involved in, with it for a long time. I know, obviously, the, the Bay Alliance, the Georgia Health Alliance, we're all members of each other's uh, coalitions and councils. And I think the strength of Global Health Council is really the members. You know, we have almost 100 members, very diverse, cuts across the global health spectrum, private sector members, INGOs, NGOs, academia, um, and getting that diversity and being able to elevate all of those voices to make a collective problem-solving argument for how we get better on global health is, it's really a pleasure to be, to be leading that. And I, I think particularly in this time that we are in and seem to be perpetually in, I know we keep saying, we'll get out of it, we'll get out of it. And I hope that we do soon, but um, just being in a, a time in the world where health is so palpable and so important, again, for its intersectionality with all of development, all of economics, all of human rights. I think, again, the Global Health Council has so much there to bring to that conversation. We, we mentioned at the start the relationship with the regional Global Health Alliances. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? What, what's your hope there for how we all work together? Well, I think that, you know, Global Health Council, the headquarters are based in DC, right? And so we're, we're very kind of in the beltway focused often. And I think having global health advocates and global health change makers throughout the, the regions in the United States is incredibly important to help support and elevate those messages. I mean, thinking about California, of course, you have a very powerful woman <laughs> in her state who, um, who, and uh, I mean, she's not the only one, the California. I, I take it. I take it. You're talking about Congresswoman Barbara Lee. <laughs> Barbara Lee and also <laughs> Pelosi. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, but yes, and the vice president. Of, right. A number of outspoken and the vice president, right. Just, uh, you know, a plethora of political voice and will there that that needs to be reinforced that needs to be thanked for all the hard work that they do I mean I I think it's a it's a thankless job right and everyone just has a problem to lay before you if you're in the government um, but there's also that thank you piece and so same thing with Georgia and and the other alliances that we have a, a cadre of public health folks and professionals that can really push and support the government and what it's doing so it's sort of a crazy time for you to come into the leadership of the <laughs> There's global opportunity health. and chaos. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and I wondered if, if I could get your thoughts on the landscape and, you know, recognizing that you're, you know, finding your feet mm. and looking at, at, at where to have the greatest impact. But if it's okay, I'd love to just get your thoughts on some of the key events that have either sure. just happened or are, or are coming up. Um, and, and the first one, obviously, is the COVID summit that right. uh, President Biden just had. Um, how impactful was that, do you think? I think... Uh... I think there's an opportunity for it to be more impactful, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that these global moments and having U.S. leadership on this issue is crucial. There's no, there's no minimizing of that. 
that having the president of the United States call together a summit of world leaders and saying, like, we have got to figure this out, as well as seeing the United States put forward a plan, um, at least an early plan of how, of how that's going to happen. I have someone having worked in advocacy for a long time, I value the global moments, but I also know that change comes in the details. And so I think the impact is yet to be seen because we're waiting for those steps. We're waiting to understand how these big promises of vaccine donations and um, mobilizing more financing and working with other countries is all going to, to pan out. Um, so I, I would never say we shouldn't have had it. We definitely should have had it. And it's an important time. But like now we need to see some some concrete accountability for the promises that were made. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I mean, in, in a way, and, and and of course, all of our organizations here are nonpartisan mm -hmm. and fully committed to the engagement of all elected officials. But it feels as if for the last, well, for the first phase of the response, there wasn't a response per right. se, more than more than us sort of being caught in the traffic lights of what was happening. Yes. And, and now we're looking to the public health community to sort of hold the reins and take us forward. But mm -hmm. of course, this is the public health community that, you know, people like you and I have advocated with and sometimes advocated against. So it's sort of it's sort of getting back to where we were in terms of the the discourses with the public health community. Yes, I, I think that that is a really important point that gets missed sometimes or gets undersold that there the, in this concept of that we hear all the time of building back better. There is the very fundamental building back better of our own U.S. government infrastructure and belief in science and willingness to expense dollars and effort on international issues and, and global health. So that is tied up, I think, in where we are. And it's challenging because, there, as you know, this is not something amazing that I'm about to say, but there's an incredible sense of urgency here um, that, that we need to see movement and that, you know, it's sort of a confluence of events that the kind of nationalist trend and inward looking trend we saw um, before this new administration, not just from the U.S., from many other countries, mm -hmm really proved to be even more of a struggle when we're faced with a pandemic, right? Where you rely on collective action and where you should realize that despite sort of geographical boundaries, we're all interconnected and a virus doesn't care, right? About your kind of nationalist tendencies. And so I think we're all, we're still coming out of that um, coupled with just the real need to move resources and, you know, vaccines, obviously, but vaccine delivery takes more than vaccines. And so I think that, that that's a piece of where we need to see some concrete action. And, and that, yeah, and, and that's where I've sort of enjoyed seeing some of the advocacy of, of the Global Fund and Friends of the Global mm -hmm. Fight yes. in just sort of, you, you know, uh, PPE, uh, prevention and basic treatment that still has to be part of it as well as the you know the moonshot the the, the vaccine and I, I've been really impressed with the way you guys have you know kept Washington's feet to the fire through this but there was one question I wanted to ask you um yes, sure. so you've got <laughs> you've got yeah so we've got the U.S. 
domestically yes. aggressively pushing for boosters. Mm-hmm. Um, the Pfizer booster is approved, I think, and the yes, FDA has made recommendations regarding Moderna and, mm-hmm. uh, and the J&J. But on the other hand, the WHO is deeply opposed and has got this major campaign against boosters, mm-hmm. while, you know, first doses remain largely inaccessible to the majority of the world's population. Um, Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, said that we can do both. We can run and chew gum. What do you think? I I think it's a it's a tough question for uh, a government to have to answer this perpetual thing of why are we sending things overseas when people are not fully protected here, um, and that dialogue was one of the non-constructive things that really held held up international engagement. I don't think that we are chewing gum and walking at the same time right now. Um, I think again. There have been a lot of pledges uh, of vaccine donation. There have been commitments of funds, most of it already appropriated to go internationally. Um, We have a real equity problem here. I mean, you know, we had an equity problem in health before internationally, but I think this one with these very aggressive targets of 40% of the world vaccinated by um, the end of the year and 70% by UNGA, right? So that includes low and middle income countries. We are nowhere near meeting that. I heard someone said the other day that the IMF had said they would they would settle for 30% <laughs> by, <laughs> by that time. Uh, with, there's a real gulf between 70 and 30, right? And so um, Kaiser Foundation has some great data tracking the vaccine donations. Um, and this is just vaccines, right? This is not even delivery. And so I think the last time I looked, you know, the over 1 billion pledged, um, to be donated, 900 million haven't even shipped. So how how are we doing that? And that's that again is only like the medicine in the vial that does not yeah. even get us to a plan for mobilizing health workers and mobilizing systems and transportation in countries where those have been under resourced for years. So I, I everyone should be protected, right? Everyone should have access yeah. to the vaccine. Um, I think the calculus of, you know, walking and chewing gum at the same time is possible, but we are not there. Yeah. And this is even before the boosters. Yeah. I, I mean, this is this was going to be my final question for you, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I may as well raise it now and, and then we can come back to other things. But, you know, COVID definitely the defining geopolitical issue of our generation. But But how worried are you about how we are managing, not managing globally. I mean, I confess, I'm I'm really anxious that whatever progress may or may not be made in the North, you know, mm-hmm. spotty and variable as it is, yeah. basically vaccines are not reaching the South. And this can only lead to a benefit to a virus that thrives on, you know, that evolves rapidly. I mean, wh- where really do we go from here? Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think we saw that with the Delta variant, right? That in places like Brazil and others where there had not been sort of a systematic attempt to, even on the level of the United States, to kind of contain and get people screened and vaccinated, we saw mutations. I think there, there's two there's two pieces here, though, is that not only is it worrying that we're not really taking and holding this idea that 
you know, we're, we're not safe until we're all safe or that viruses don't care about borders um, and that there are long-term effects of this, right? There's economic effects. There are, um, there's been tons of recent studies about, you know, long-term labor losses because of COVID, um, security issues because of, of kind of the destruction of social norms. Um, and I think that's all true. But I also, I don't want to lose sight in this too, that not only do we have COVID, we, we also have seen COVID's impact on other diseases and other sectors of global health and a real backsliding, right? So whether that's HIV, TB, and malaria, and I know Global Fund has put out some great pieces about that recently, um, but we see the same thing in maternal and child health, NCDs, and, you know, family planning. I mean, the list, immunizations, any, any one of them, pick it. You, there's, a, there's a problem. And, and so I think one of the, the pieces around this, the vaccine promise and the promise of these summits, how are we doing this? Are we going to put in new money and kind of a new system to, to get to these goals? Or is the plan to take from already under-resourced settings? So the vaccine delivery piece, these 900 million doses that haven't shipped, when they do get there, where are the community health workers coming from? I mean, I think as Global Health Council, we don't want to see community health workers pulled from doing child immunizations and doing diabetes screening to, to be giving vaccines. And where do you place the, the importance, right? I mean, I think we have two kind of fires going at the same time, and it's all part of this panic and neglect system that we have in, in global health when, when we're sort of in crisis. I mean, I think... The HIV crisis was probably the last really big global health security mm. issue. Certainly Ebola was one as well, but was contained within a region, devastating as it was for that region. Um, but you're seeing the same kind of questions about like, what's the machine globally that we need to address kind of dueling yet complementary health issues? Yeah. And and so that sort of, you, you mentioned, do we use existing or declining resources? And of course, that inevitably, given my accent, brings me back to the United Kingdom. <laughs> it's about to, about to yeah. host COP26. Yes. Uh, and I really wanted to get your thoughts on that. Mm. But, but the idea that one of the major funders can just unilaterally, I was going to say loony, unilaterally <laughs> cut its overseas yeah. development fund in such a dramatic way and think yeah. that it can then talk climate change and have credibility on human health and human activity is just extraordinary to me. Um, yeah. But but COP26 is coming up in Glasgow. Yes. Um, it's going to be a classic forum for the One Health, how climate change inter interacts with human health and human activity. Mm -hmm. What do you see coming out of that? Well, what I hope comes out of it is some real, um, real concerted inclusion as health in the climate negotiations. I mean, I, I think WHO put out a great paper recently looking at climate change and health with some recommendations about how to integrate um, the two. I, I think, unfortunately, the health questions around climate change have been sort of a, a secondary thought, right? I mean, we spent years talking about emissions and um, wedges and, you know, very technical language. And, and I do think that if there is any light in the COVID epidemic pandemic that we did see in this past year, like if you have a pandemic and you have climate change, you have a real problem, you know? Um, and that of course, 
climate change and the destruction of biodiverse areas only feeds these sort of zootic diseases that can cross species. Um, so there is really a circle there that we that we need to tackle. And I'm hoping that with COVID and with the real elevation we've seen of climate change incidents like the floods in Germany or you know hurricanes, of course, in Haiti and, and other tropical um, islands, as well as the small developing island states in the Pacific, that there will be some real conversation there that is more than just about rising water and the need to, to move populations. Like we need to talk about the underlying health piece and that when we have climate change, and again, this is one of those things like climate change affects everyone. I think that that was another awakening moment this past couple yeah. of years, like that it's not just a low and middle income country issue. Um, you need a strong and resilient health system, right? And you need right. strong and resilient and healthy people to adapt to this changing climate. So I hope we see that. I hope we see it elevated to the level it needs to be. Um, unfortunately, we haven't seen that in past COPs, I don't think. So I am um, I'm really, really pleased to hear you make the link between HIV and COVID and the experiences mm -hmm. between the two. Um, just totally out there, have you seen the new Fauci documentary yet by Janet Tobias? I haven't, I haven't seen it, no. Well, well, this is a, a shameless plug for it. It's on Disney okay. Plus, but it's so interesting because mm -hmm. it compare it, it looks at him supporting healthcare workers and supporting activists during mm -hmm. the AIDS pandemic, and then suddenly here we are in 2020, and right. it's the first time I've seen that that kind of link. Um, you mentioned the Global Fund. And mm -hmm. we've got the replenishment coming up next next year. And yes. Fingers crossed. Who knows? It fingers may crossed. actually take place um, in the Hopefully United States. Hopefully it'll take place in the United States, right? Yes. Yes. Um, and, and you were mentioning the way in which COVID has transformed the way we, we think about mm -hmm. these other pandemics. And I, I mm -hmm. saw there was data um, demonstrating that TB, we now know that TB spreads much in the same way that SARS-CoV-2 mm -hmm. does, you know, through droplets in breathing, not yeah. just through, through um, uh, coughing. We've got the malaria vaccine. We've got the long-acting long PrEP and treatment yeah. HIV injectables coming. So, so how do we keep our feet to the pedal and bring these pandemics under control while we prepare for future pandemics? Dun, dun. That's the million dollar question. <laughs> no, but I think I just want to hit on a couple of things you said, because I think, you know, I mean, there was the malaria vaccine is an amazing achievement, right? I, so there is, there has been good health news in these past couple of years, which, you know, I feel gets lost under the all COVID all the time situation that we feel ourselves in. Um, but the advances in malaria, the advances in the PrEP and other um, antiretroviral treatment is like astounding. I mean, I think that that is something really to be celebrated. And also, because we have this, we need to keep plugging away. Like I think for some, for some issues like malaria, like HIV, we're at NTB, as we understand more about how it works, we're really at an inflection point where we can turn yet another corner and making those less deadly than they have been. But we can't do that if, for instance, global fund replenishment doesn't come with a hefty investment from the US and the UK and other donors. Yeah. Um, and that that money is, 
is used for, of course, as the Global Fund has always done, supporting you know, horizontal health systems and health system strengthening and really building up capacity in country, but it's also disease specific, right? And so that needs to stay there. And it's paramount, I think, that then when we're talking about other funds for pandemic preparedness and response, we can't, you know, take from Peter to pay Paul, back to your Catholic Church analogy in the beginning, that there have to be really like separate investments and that we can't keep trying to double dip into all the money that that we've been allocating to things that we've seen progress on. And we've, yeah, and we've got this um, uh, WHO uh, or UN special session happening at the end of November, ironically concluding on World AIDS Day, December the 1st. Um, I'm really hoping that it it will be about identifying new funding and Mm -hmm. not wasting valuable time in the classic UN way, deciding on where we're going to house things. Um, But do you... You, you spoke about the um, the impact on infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. Um, what about non-infectious diseases? How have you seen COVID detract us from doing what we need to do in, say, sexual reproductive health mm-hmm. or diabetes or heart disease? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that we're seeing something similar, right? I mean, I. I I think in particular with COVID, certainly because we know that um, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and other things are comorbidities for for COVID and really having a stronger, more deadly kind of COVID, we need to get better on the NCD front. Um, We are woefully behind on NCDs in, in low and middle income countries. I mean, it's, it's true in the United States and the UK as well, but I think in low and middle income countries, again, this resilient health system question, you know, I, I think one of the things that I've been talking about with folks is in the US, at least, we have screening for diabetes, for obesity, for cardiovascular. We have people know or can know if they have those risk factors. And so when it came to rolling out vaccines, even though it wasn't as smooth as anybody wanted it to be, we did have some health guidance on who was at risk first. I don't see that being possible in other low and middle income countries because people would have to get screened to know they have the risk. So again, I think we're looking at really thinking about keeping the health system strong as well as funding and resourcing pandemic preparedness. There's been a backslide, certainly, I think for for any number of reasons. And we saw this across the world, not just in in the global South. People don't want to go. They can't go to the doctor. They don't want to go to the doctor. They're afraid to go to the doctor. So a lot of routine things have just fallen by. I mean, I think we've all seen the statistic about routine child immunizations, you know, 30% down across the world because people don't want to go to the clinic. Um, and it's the same thing, frankly, for sexual and reproductive health, right? You, you're not going to go get family planning if you're worried about catching COVID. We saw the same thing happen during the Ebola epidemic um, in West Africa, that maternal mortality went up, family planning use went down, routine disease screening, routine and preventive care went down. Um, and so I think, you know, the flip side of this too is with COVID, at least in the populations in higher income countries that we've seen so far, we know that NCDs are comorbidities for COVID, but we also know that COVID can have long-term effects on 
especially cardiac issues, respiratory issues, mobility issues, neurologic issues. And so I think, again, not to just keep beating this point over and over, but we need these strong health systems and investment in that because once the viral spread is contained, we're likely to see some long-term ramifications from, from the pandemic on people's health. Yeah. So I see that we're beginning to get a bunch of questions coming in. And uh, my advice for and hope for our, our guests is to just keep those questions uh, going. I've just got a couple of questions left before we go to those, um, if I may. And, and, and one, I think it relates to a question here about healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. Um, wow, they have been, I mean, right around the world from the Wuhan nurses to yeah. the health professionals in North Dakota, in Florida, Wow. I mean, these people have really been on the front line. Um, From a policy perspective, what do we need Washington and Sacramento to be doing for our healthcare workers? Yeah. I mean, they're amazing, right? I mean, I think it's unbelievable to me actually to see, particularly in the United States, I will say just the denigration of healthcare workers that's come about. Um, There was an article in the New York Times the other day about people being, you know, having to take different routes home as public health professionals and healthcare workers. And, and so definitely protection from violence. I mean, I can't even believe I have to say that that that's a low bar. Right. Um, I also think, you know, one of the, at the Biden COVID summit, just to go back to that, one of the best interventions was from a nurse from, I think, Kenya, Um, I want to say Kenya, but I'm not sure that that's the right country, but talking about like the sacrifices that she was making and like purchasing her own PPE and just working, you know, 16 hours a day. And that example of her like buying her own PPP and working no matter what happened was held up as an example of heroism. And certainly it is. But frankly, no healthcare worker around the world should have to be buying their own PPE. That is ridiculous. And and so again, this comes to this question of like, when we're talking about ending COVID, it's not just about a vaccine. Like there are so many more pieces and making sure that healthcare workers are protected, that there are investments and there's a supply chain that works to get PPE internationally on time um, is important. And so U.S. investment and leadership on that front could really help. And um, again, for those of you in the regional alliances, putting some pressure on your uh, powerful members of Congress and just reminding people that vaccines don't get delivered without healthcare workers right. is a key message. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, it's a different world. 2020 to 2021 but in 2020 sarah and i sarah anderson and i were part of uh, this informal team supporting the u.s territory of guam manage its covid response of course it had you know the uss theodore roosevelt um just took all of its 5,000 crew that had been you know there'd been a major outbreak of covid um and popped them into the posh hotels that nobody was in um and there were no PPE on the island. And um, it is an irony that we had to get donations from AIDS activists in yeah. uh, China and Southeast Asia to help. Yeah. Um, and so it, to me, it's it's a really interesting question of both solidarity, but also um, the 
the the primacy of looking after our people who are on the front line. And um, I, I just sort of echo what you say about the power of the regional alliances to keep that uh, on the uh, on the hot burner for our elected officials. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's important too to remember that healthcare workers also get sick. You know, I mean that that PPE. Of course, we're talking about protective equipment, but healthcare workers are people. I mean that we sort of refer to them always by this title as if they're kind of these robots <laughs> who aren't touched by the regular human experience, but. Um, they live and they work in the communities, they live in the community, they are part of the community. And so I think it's just, it's important not to lose sight that yes, they get sick, yes, their families get sick, that they are dealing with all of the same issues all of us have been dealing through COVID, right? Whether you're in a, a high income country and you're working from home and you're dealing with childcare issues, or you're in a low income country and there, there are, there's lack of food, there's lack of supplies, there's lack of clean water, um, that those people are part of, of that community and so deserve the same kind of respect that we would give to a patient. So uh, one last question from me, and then we'll go to the floor. And again, keep those questions coming in for us. Uh, but um, one final um, healthcare worker question, PEPFAR. We've yes. got a new administrator, a new know, global exciting. AIDS ambassador, yes. John Kangazon, and it's just fantastic. And expectations are really high for him. But yeah. I couldn't help thinking, you know, are, is the US doing what the United Kingdom is so good at doing, which is basically taking the best healthcare people from um, other countries and bringing them in. But what advice would you give, John? Um, so I just to say, I think some of us have the same question that taking the, the head of CDC Africa right now is, you know, it's a big move. Um, I think that being the first anything is a lot of pressure, right? Being yeah. the first woman at something, being the first African man at something, and the advice I would have is like the entire world doesn't rest on your shoulders. You know, I mean, you're not representing an entire continent. You, you are in, in, in theory, but you're, you know, it's the heavy as the head that wears the crown. I also think on the health side is um, that PEPFAR and the Global Fund have done tremendous things. I yeah. think that under Ambassador Burks, PEPFAR got really good about data right? Yeah. And she was very heavily invested in data. And now we have a lot of information. I think for the next ambassador, it's going to really be figuring out how to use that information to improve prevention, improve rollout of these new technologies that we're seeing, and improve coordination with Global Fund and, and Gavi that are working in this, this arena. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's a big job. I mean, I, there's no doubt about it. But I think, I mean, he's an amazing candidate, and um, you know, has the years of experience in CDC Africa, lots of data in there. So that should be an, an easy transition. We're all very eager to see yeah. him come on board and get confirmed. Yeah, and we're, we're all. You're right about the process. He needs mm -hmm. to be confirmed. Yes, um, and, and we're all rooting for him. Um, and and of course, he has got U.S. experience. Yes, um, Experience of working with with uh, with state, which is which is good. Um, so look, I'm going to broaden it out if that's okay. Okay, sure thing. Um, and I see that a first question comes from one of our um, hosts for today, from uh, Maria. 
Uh, and she asks, where do you this is where do you see the global health council going under your leadership? Or put it another another way, what's your vision for GHC leadership? Yes, I've been getting a lot of this this question. I think after you pass the one month mark, even by one hour, people start to start asking you. Um, well, you know, when I came into this role and was interviewing for this role, I did a lot of thinking about that vision question because, of course, you get asked that as a CEO candidate. I mean, for me, I, I feel like, and it's proven true my first month, that there's such a strong foundation at GHC and that such an interesting model of work. And I would love to see that made stronger and built upon. And part of that is diversifying our membership and growing our membership. I think traditionally for GHC, many of you may know this, but our our sort of areas of work have been U.S. advocacy, and we're also in non-state actor status with the World Health Organization, so really are able to be the voice of civil society and bring civil society into those WHO conversations. We also do advocacy around multilaterals of various, you know, G20, G7, and World Bank, all that stuff. But that that has been largely our international kind of voice. And I think we're we're the Global Health Council and that that global piece needs to to grow and be firmer and less maybe aspirational is what I've been calling it. And I think that um, the model that we have of member organizations and roundtables and convening um, this collective voice, there's a really strength in that. And I would love to see more voices outside the U.S. and more voices outside high-income countries come into that dialogue in an equitable way, not just to feed sort of our advocacy as it is, but really to think through what's the value proposition and what's the value added of a GHC overseas. Yeah. Um, and, and I think this, this next question sort of builds on that. Um, someone... Uh, Someone asked, please share your vision strategy on what moves congressional policymakers to support mm-hmm. and fund global health. I mean, that, that's the key, is there? Is there room again for more shared humanity, global goods, responsible global citizens? Mm-hmm. Or is it still important primarily to communicate with congressional policymakers about the benefits, protections to the United States derived from our global investments? So sort of the power of the power of soft power. Yeah, uh, this. um, So I think there's a couple of things in there. I I think we can't, one, we can't talk about Congress and policymakers as homogenous in what motivates them. And I think that's part of good advocacy, right, is tailoring the message for your for your audience. Um, That said, I think there there is the dichotomy that U.S. congressional members, anyone elected is beholden to their voters. And so there is always this argument or discussion in there about how does whatever they're doing best serve their constituency. And I think that's where we get into the global health security conversation of like, I'm protecting you in California by, you know, sending this money overseas. And yes, it's morally good, right? But really at the heart of it is your best interest. I don't think you can lose that, but I do think that you can move the the ethical arguments around equity and inclusion. And I think we're seeing that in this this conversation, which really, I think, germinated quite a bit um, in the U.S. after the the racial violence from 
from police killings and other things about decolonizing development, democratizing development, and what is power sharing look like? And what's the long-term game? Because I think often that that constituency voter cycle gets you into the two-year, right? You're getting elected in the House every two years. So what are you doing in the two years? But if we're talking about a long-term, sustainable, peaceful, equitable world, that that's another argument to, to talk about how we shift and share power and, and elevate the local interest. Um, Unfortunately, we've been talking about this a lot, about the traditional security narrative versus a more human-centered one, and it's actually the topic of our upcoming Global Health Landscape Symposium in December, um, which is virtual, December 9th and 10th. I have to give it a plug. My team would kill me if I didn't, Um, but you can go to our site and and register for it. Um, But this idea from security to solidarity is really, I think, the topic of the day, given COVID and and what's been happening with health investment, we'll make sure to uh, to plug that symposium. <laughs> I promise. Um, uh, it it makes you mentioned the global health security argument, and it mm-hmm. made me think of um, recent discussions around whether there, in fact, needs to be a how shall yeah, I put this a global health. health a global health NATO, um, yes. where, and um, I first heard this on one of the UK podcasts mm-hmm. that I, I love. I fold my laundry listening to this <laughs> podcast, which is called The Bunker. And I got so mad, the idea <laughs> of a global health NATO. But but it does speak to this challenge mm-hmm. of how do we make, how do we make global health relevant to Joe Manchin? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, I will say that, honestly, I, I don't know. And I think you're talking about the Global, global Threats Council, right? This idea yeah. of, you know, um, sort of a, a secondary UN body to the global health security, uh, the global health security, <laughs> the Human Rights Security Council. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's a tough sell. And I, and I think, again, this is the advocacy conundrum, right? Are you going in to educate people and switch them to your worldview? Or are you going in to get the money and the resources? And so if, if your goal is to get the resources, then use the argument that resonates. I mean, I, I think, you know, Joe mentioned, I mean, even with climate change, right? I mean, he's he wants to cut the Green New Deal, and then you look at his state, and you're like, really? Because I think you're going to need this. <laughs> so I I think that there are always going to be some people that you are not going to move, and and that's kind of the nature of our political system, unfortunately. Um, but there are plenty of people who you can get a few steps along um, by starting with what resonates with them, and then incorporating other discussion points. So so here's another question um, that Sarah has identified. Um, Can you discuss further the intersections between the very real and daunting inequities in the United States? Yes, absolutely. And the need to close gaps in the US outcomes and access to services, particularly along racial and ethnic lines, versus two, the need for the US and other rich companies to close the gaps uh, and lack of access that exists in 
lower and middle income countries. And um, I think that's one of the you know key questions we've learned from the pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. at the start, who you know. Was it the World Bank? I forget who it was who did an evaluation of who's best prepared for a pandemic, the US oh, and the, the UK. Yeah. And what happened? The global, health, the global Health Security Index, which missed the mark in their yeah. methodology. Yeah. So, yeah. It sort so, of reminds me of that, um, that Norwegian comedy pop song where um, Africans came I'm together to buy radiators for Norwegians. Um, Norwegian pop songs are a very obscure reference just for your future talk show hosting. I think um, these are two, two sides of the same coin, health inequities in the U.S., health inequities abroad. I mean, I think, and I know this is uncomfortable sometimes when I have said this, but I, I think, you know, the, the international development, the global health system, USAID, U.S. foreign policy, grew out of a nation that is founded on systemic racism. So there's no way that those, I mean, same thing with the UK, right? There's no way that the values embedded in systemic racism don't influence our global health architecture. That's where we are, right? And so, you know, I mean, there's that famous Martin Luther King quote that's injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. And there's, it's true, there's a huge connection by how we operate in the United States and how we operate abroad. And I think that's why we saw, thankfully, after many conversations about systemic racism in the United States following um, the George Floyd murder, the Ahmed Aubrey murder, and others, Breonna Taylor conversations then not only about what does that mean for all of the systems in the U.S., but what does it mean of how we interact with low and middle income countries overseas? Mm-hmm. And of course, there's colonial roots and there are security roots, not necessarily human interest roots that are the founding of that. And so now we're in that system, whether it's in the U.S. domestically or, or working overseas, and we have to figure out how do we make it better? Yeah, well, I, I can see that we're coming up to time and Uh, Sarah observed that that last question actually came from the floor, but she does have a question, which might be a nice way uh, for us to wrap up the Q&A before I hand back to Maria. Um, So there's so much that can pull us down. (laughs) We were were almost going there, and it is a difficult time. But what on the advocacy front really excites you that you think we can get behind and actually do something about? So I do think, again, back to this global moments piece, there is opportunity here, right? It's not going to be easy. It is exciting to me that we are finally in the U.S. talking about trying to work on international relief for COVID, right? And and moving vaccines. And I'm also excited that at the COVID summit, the U.S. took a multilateral approach. I think that that was a big deal that even in the commitments they laid out, um, there was reference and incorporation of commitments that had been brought up by the G20, that WHO had done. So I think that this spirit of cooperation excites me and there is opportunity there, especially as we have sort of one convening after the others, like a steady drumbeat of meetings um, at the global level. 
And I think we can do something with that, right? I think if we mobilize, whether it's in a regional area of the alliances or whether it's at a global level and, and national level in DC and really holds the US's government to, to their commitments and, and have some accountability there. I also am really excited by this conversation about, about decolonizing and democratizing development. I think it's long overdue. And I think the trick there is, you know, we talk about, I hear a lot of rhetoric about decolonizing the development coming from high income countries. It's not usually the colonizer that decolonizes, right? And so I think, we need to really think about what our role as U.S. advocates or U.K. advocates and, and implementers is in allyship to our low and middle income country partners as they develop what decolonizing looks like. Thank you for that. I, um, I, uh, my family has, a, has, a, has an imperial history, so I feel... <laughs> very, very sensitively about this and very, very uncomfortable talking myself about decolonization. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, for allies based in the North, you've hit the nail on the head. Mm -hmm. So so thank you so much, um, Elisha. And I'd, um, I'm getting constantly your name wrong. Can I just... No, that was get... right. You got it right that time. Elisha. So Elisha. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, I, and I deeply, deeply apologize for that. Oh, okay. Um, it's okay. So, uh, well, with that, I think we've we've really wrapped up the Q and A session, and it's time for me to hand back to Maria from the Georgia uh, Bay, uh, Global Health Alliance uh, to give her a chance to uh, to wrap up and bring the session to a close. Um, Maria, are you there? Yes, I can see I you. I am here, and it's great to see you guys. Thank you so much. What an outstanding conversation. Um, thank you, Ben, for, you know, you're such a professional and um, poignant job moderating this conversation. And Elisha, always great to hear from you. I'm excited about your vision for where you're going to be taking um, GHC and leading our community forward up on the hill and, and elsewhere and beyond our borders. Um, before I close out, and, and I do believe we got to everyone's questions. If we missed anything, please, uh, you know, we can do our best to acknowledge these um, uh, separately um, via email. Just shoot us a note. I did want to share my screen and just thank everybody again on behalf of all the alliances. I think y'all can see my screen. And um, of course, our partners at the Global Health Council. Um, but uh, for your knowledge, the alliances around the U.S. are, um, of course, the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, Georgia Global Health Alliance, but also the Triangle Global Health Consortium and RTP and the Washington Global Health Alliance out of Seattle. Um, we all have a number of upcoming events. I'm going to highlight a couple really quick. Um, um, the new leader down, over, uh, well, I should say up from where I'm at, at up in RTP, uh, they have their annual conference coming up in just a couple of weeks. And I know you can still register. Um, so please try and attend that virtual event. I know they have a very relevant program for all of us, no matter where we sit. Additionally, um, as Elisha mentioned earlier, the uh, 2021 Global Health Landscape Symposium is coming up in December. Please check out the website that's 
here and consider attending and learning from that. It's a great tool we get every year from the team at GHT. And finally, I'll do a shameless club plug um, for our Women in Global Health chapter here in Georgia. We have our 10 tips on effective advocacy event coming up. It's a great follow-up to this conversation, actually, uh, next month on November 9th. This is free to attend. Um, so if you want to get more involved in advocacy, better understand some of the terms and words that our colleagues like Elisha use and Sarah use every day, um, please join us for that. And I'd like to thank our Women in Global Health chapter that's coming up on its one-year anniversary this January for putting off such a great year. But um, <clears throat> again, thank you, everybody, for um, joining us today. And we're ending a couple of minutes early. But please get involved in your local alliance. Um, share events. Let us know what's going on as we transition from a full a digital world into a more hybrid and new reality as we continue to navigate this pandemic. Um, please remain safe and well. And thank you again to our speakers and all of our alliance partners. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you to Elisha. Thanks also to Sarah Anderson of the Bay Area Global Health Alliance and Maria Thacker-Goethe of the Georgia Global Health Alliance. Thanks also to our director and producer, Eric Espera of Newsdoc Media. And thanks to you. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone.